Andrew Austin is a true maverick, probably most known for delivering shareholders a 42 times return in Rockrose Energy over a four and a half year period, and then creating Kistos. His reputation truly precedes him. After sitting down with Andrew for only 10 minutes, you really get the sense that he's just got going. This is gonna be a hell of an episode. So sit back, relax, and we hope you enjoy. Get money. Get money. One for the money. $350 Swiss. Zorik, 23. Two for the show. Two get ready and board Go! Welcome to Mavericks. Andrew, lots of people in the city know you as the man that made them an absolute fortune with the likes of Rock Rose and Kistos. But I think where I want to start today is, is to take you back to your younger days and how you got involved in the city in the first place. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I, I didn't go to university because I basically got a, a place at Cambridge to read maths. And then suddenly someone found out that I didn't have a, an O-level in a foreign language. And as a result, I couldn't go to Cambridge. Uh, I was coming from a um, comprehensive school down in Hampshire. And so I decided, well, if that's the case, sod it, I'm just going to end up working in the city. Uh, and I didn't really know anything about the city and nobody around me knew anything about the city. So I wrote blind to about 150 city institutions. And, um, and actually, the, um, my basis of, there was something called the city directory back in those days. And there was a copy that wasn't very well thumbed in the school library. And I was looking through that and I thought, well, if a company's based and its address is 18 to 25 London Wall. That must be quite a big company, so I'll write to them and see whether or that works. Which obviously is complete nonsense, because half the time that just means they're part of a really big office prop building. But anyway, I got offered a job at the Bank of England, and um, after that I, was, I accepted that job. Uh, and then I was offered a, um, an interview by a, a, a stock jobber, so a market maker in yeah. the old days which included a, a train ticket up to London and a trip around the London Stock Exchange. And so I thought, I'll, I'll go for that. So I went for the interview and got the job. Par parents in the city or not? No, 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 no. My dad was a traveling salesman and my mother was a, uh, a school classroom assistant. So no, nothing to do with them. So I, I imagine back then, so you've written to 150 people, or 150 firms. Interview process must have been pretty different back then. I was the first non-public schoolboy to be brought in uh, in the company I was at in the role I was in at the time. And that was quite a big shock um, uh, to me at the time. I was living above a church hall in Forest Hill in Southeast London. Um, and um, yeah, it was a pretty big shock to the system. Uh, but, you know, I, I got on with it in the end. And, um, and then I left there and ended up working for a series of other bigger banks. So I worked for Merrill. I then went to Japan working for um, uh, BZW as was, which is now Barclays. Uh, capital. I was um, trading uh, derivatives in Osaka um, around the same time as Nick Leeson was doing it slightly less bearings, successfully yeah. for Bearings. Um, and you will see that Bearings doesn't exist anymore and Barclays still does. So something suggests that I might have done marginally better than Nick did at the time. Yeah. T so I started in the city in 2017, I want to say. I'd already left 17 years. What? Well, yeah, I mean, that's... <laughs> but tell me, tell me about what it was like joining the city at that stage. Well, firstly, there was an awful lot of honor in what you did. So the whole, you know, we didn't have tape lines or anything like that. It was, my word is my bond. And um, sometimes when I see people try and wheedle out of things these days, I find that quite frustrating because, you know, th those are the, the, the codes that we, we all grew up with. Um, it was more maverick. It was wild. Um, if you, you know, I remember working in Merrill's dealing room in uh, Finsbury Square, 
And if you put down a cup of coffee uh, before you picked it up to drink it, you had to look and see whether someone else has stumped a cigarette out in in the meantime, oh, yeah. which was kind of um, a little. Uh, um, and there was, you know, there was quite a big um, um, drinking culture. To be fair, thank you for this, by the way. Very well, very nice. Um, so people go out at lunchtime, would come back after lunch, continue trading for a couple of hours, and then drive home. Yeah. Um, so things like that were quite different, and a lot of things like that were were um, would be completely socially unacceptable these days. Yeah. Wh um, why Why did you skip your? What was the the thought behind skipping uni? Was it just? Uh, well, if I couldn't go to Cambridge, I wasn't going to go anywhere. Right. I was either going to do it properly. Right. Or not do it at all. Right. So, and I it, it, look, it was that's the arrogance of youth in part, but um, it was the right thing to. Well, you, you say that one of our one of our other guests. Has has said something quite kind of similar. You know, he didn't go to uni. And he was saying that he doesn't totally see the merit in spending four years. You know, a, a kind of a, a a non, I don't know. You know, a class uni coming out with you know eighty grand of debt or whatever it is, um, going in as a, a you know some kind of clerk at an investment bank or whatever, having no experience and feeling pretty miserable about things. Do you think there's, do you think there's something to be said for that? Did you did you look back and go, oh, I wish I went to uni or, or not really? I think I'd have probably got laid a lot more if I'd gone to university, to be fair. Um, I'm sure that's the answer you were looking for. All of my children now have all gone to university, um, except for the ones full team. I've recommended to that to them. I don't think the same level of mobility that I had back in 1984 is necessarily possible now. Um, 1983 is necessarily possible now. I don't think that is as easily done. So I... Um, I think it's harder for people to sit there and just write blind emails. You know, you turned around to me. One of your questions was, did your, either of your parents work in the city? No, they didn't. And no, I didn't have an uncle who was able to call someone up or a godfather who called someone up. And, you know, and, and I think without, to just do it entirely on merit, entirely on where you stood, in terms of getting those connections to initially get your feet through the door, uh, I think that's much harder now than it was. So, unfortunately, I think you probably do need to go to university. And I also think people grow up a little bit later in life now than they did when we were younger. And you have a piece of paper, a piece of yellow paper in your office, and, and you have written on it from when you were kind of roughly seven years old, and it says, prospecting for oil is a pricey business, so you have to be very well organized and scientific in your approach. Now, for a seven-year-old, that... That's a pretty remarkable thing to say. So why, why investment banking? Why? Did um, you... Firstly, I wasn't seven. I was 11 when okay. I had to be fair. Um, so, you know, I think you're overestimating my talent. He's a seven-year-old. I was 11. Um, it, I don't know. It just was a, it was just an exciting thing to do at the time. I, lo I loved the buzz of working on the floor of the exchange. I mean, the floor of the exchange was an unbelievable place to be and a real, really interesting place to grow up, as were trading rooms. Um, through those days. You know, I walk into people's trading rooms now and it's all quiet and everyone's messaging each other and, you know, trading off the back of dark pools and all this sort of thing. And I think, you know, where's the shouting and swearing and, you know, all that sort of thing that used to go... Open cry, kind of. It's just, well, I mean, the, the exchange, I, never, I was never on life, um, so I'm never on a full open cry market. But, you know, it was still verbal making prices price and size, et cetera, et cetera. So 16 years in kind of traditional finance, investment banking across the world, what was the first step into, into becoming an operator? 
the first step into energy really and leaving the city was um, in, in a, around 2000. My last job in the city was I ran Credit Anstall Investment Bank in, um, in London. So I was general manager for that. And I spent a lot of time traveling across Central East and Eastern Europe. And um, so I was, you know, everywhere from the Balkans to the Baltics and into Russia on a weekly basis. And I had two young children and I just was flying too much and I wasn't at home. And um, uh, I sort of had enough of it. And I, I think I averaged for two years, six flights a week. Um, uh, so that was pretty soul destroying. So I, I just, I just thought this is enough of this. Uh, I wanted to do something else and I'd made a few quit already by that point. So, um, so I decided to do something else and, um, I ended up in the energy business, uh, initially. Was that, was that, was that a conscious thing or was it just, you stumbled into an opportunity there? I stumbled into an opportunity really. Um, uh, one of the guys that, um, I'd worked with in, uh, Hungary who was in our office in Hungary, uh, in Budapest, um, basically said, hey, I've got this mad um, Hungarian emigre to the States uh, who's running this solar business and he needs, he's got some good investors coming in, but they need someone looking after the money who they can trust. And so we went and did that job for a, for a while. This is, this is here or the US? No, it was in the US. Well, it was based in New York. Yeah. Um, uh, but the factory um, and most of the production was out in California. List, listed business or private? No, it was private. It was private. And we had an interesting board. You know, we had um, uh, Clinton's energy secretary on the board and things like that. But um, the guy that ran it was a lunatic. And um, in the end, I had to lead all the same investors back out of the business about two years later. What, what, so, what, I mean, that must be a massive jump from 16 years in fairly large structural businesses. What was it like? How did you find that transition from going to the kind of scrappier, you know? I, I think I think the one thing, and it goes back to my comment earlier on about um, um, my word is my bond and, you know, being responsible for what you do. If you're in a bank and you carry out a piece of business and you invoice someone or you sell someone some stock, you expect it to be paid, you know? If you are running a proper business, you suddenly realize that everything is about cash flow. Everything is about cash flow. And that's the biggest mistake, people leaving the city uh, or any financial background and coming into real businesses um, find, I think. I mean, you know, you guys have moved down to a smaller operation than what you've worked for in the past, and you'll experience the same thing. It's all about cash flow. And if you don't have a handle on that and you don't, you had to have certainty about where you're getting paid and where your money is at any point in time, then you're screwed. How, how soon did that did that come to the forefront? Pretty yeah. rapidly, yeah. frankly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, because uh, Zoltan was um, uh, committing money all over the place to different people, and I had to sort of rein all that back in and work out what was going on. Was it was it a very well-capitalized business, or would you raise lots of money, or was it was it more kind of scrappy startups? It was, it was, it was scrappy. And, right. But we, you know, we built... Um, uh, we built a whole load of solar farms in Africa. We built one at Rancho Seco in Texas. Sorry, Rancho, uh, Rancho Seco in um, California. We did a lot of work with um, um, uh, Native American groups um, uh, in terms of building um, uh, solar carports in places out in the desert in Arizona. Which is how we got to meet Bill Richardson, who was the um, um, uh, the Energy Secretary under Clinton. Uh, and um, but. Um, 
it was not something that was sustainable and um well it wasn't it was sustainable in the sense from a carbon f- footprint but financially it wasn't didn't work as there was a there was not enough governance and so did I you, had to leave people out did you did you did you ever think about going back into investment banking from there or not no no yeah i'd done my time yeah yeah i'd gone from you know one of the first things i was involved in was the f- original flotation of B- B- bt and i'd gone from that through till the you know, floating all of the big businesses coming out of um, uh, the opening up of Eastern Europe. You know, um, so no, I'd done enough. Do you, do you think? Do you think your investment bank? It's a question that I see a lot of kind of fairly young friends talk about. Do you think it gave you a good, um, a, a good starting point to become an operator, or not? Or do you think there were better ways in hindsight to do it? No, I think it did. Um, but I, I don't. I don't look back and say I've done. You know, I could have done this better, or I could have done that better. I could possibly have been a little less chippy and a little less arrogant along the way, and that might have helped where I rocked a few corners off people. But um, in terms of, you know, you have to take the hand you're dealt, yeah? And, um, you know, I was dealt a hand which sent me into the city. I learned a lot from it. My knowledge of options pricing is still a lot better than a lot of people, um, uh, certainly in my industry and... uh, and um, when I'm d- dealing with the trading houses and things in terms of hedging, they're still a little bit shocked about my knowledge on, on certain things, even though it's 25 years out of date. Yep. Um, but um, yeah, we were at the head of some interesting times. So how, how long how long were you at this solar business? Two, three years. And then next came, I guess? Yeah, I did a bit of consulting in the meantime for a um, um, two businesses, actually. One was... Uh, um, a bunch of guys out of uh, special forces involved in um, setting up a security business. And at the same time, I was running one of the government's challenge funds. So they were... Was, was this security... Was that was that the business that was protecting rigs in Africa? Was that... That was boats. Uh, it was basically um, maritime security, primarily, a little bit of man guarding. Right. But mainly getting people through the Straits of Hormuz and things like yeah, that. Yeah, got it. Um, and at, at a university challenge fund where you basically went around to all these universities and... Um, met with all these mad um, professors who had great ideas and didn't realize about things like barriers to entry and protecting their IP and things like that, which was quite interesting. Yeah. And they'd always take me into the senior common room and buy me a glass of wine and then get really shocked when the guy that was deciding whether or not their idea got financed or not hadn't actually been to university himself. That kind of amused them a little bit. So so then how did, how did I guess come up then? couple of people that I'd worked with who came out of the solo um, stuff who were board members on some of the solo things, uh, Francis Guggen and Brent Cheshire, um, we put money in to rescue a coal bed methane business. Um, and, um, you know, we put in tens of thousands into that and then basically traded that out into being a much bigger business. And then shale happened. So we produced the first unconventional gas in the UK, which was coal bed methane in Warrington. Well, so the, the business you rescued, that was a private business or a It was funded by private equity right. at the time. Right. And um, one of the board members had died. Another one had been offered another job in Australia. And it just sort of was falling apart and effectively was going to go into receivership. And Francis was one of the directors of the previous company and didn't want it to go bust. And so we put in enough money to save it and then turned it around. Um, and then we turned it, um, we turned it into a, we reversed it into a listed shell. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we basically kept growing that and through acquisition. So 
in a in a similar way, really, to what we did with um, Rockrose subsequently, where we initially bought some assets and then bought more assets, and um, and then the whole shale gas thing happened at the same time. And you know, while we had all this coal bed methane, effectively a sexier girl had walked into the room in the shape of uh, shale. Uh, and so that was quite an interesting ride in and of itself. So, so I guess would have been probably your first, your first experience really in the face of of kind of UK public markets. That, yeah, right. yeah. But obviously, because of my banking career, I'd been dealing with a lot of listed companies. I'd listed a lot of companies. So, you know, dealing with my first admission document wasn't exactly. I was just sitting a different side of the table to where I was used to sitting. Yeah. Um, so it was fine. So, so. I guess for for 10 10 ish years uh 2000 and yeah probably 10 years from when we started it you know we were all working with our salaries and stuff like that it floated in 2007 right the end of 2007 and i left in may 2015 and right so tw- 2007 2015 then probably probably the reason that a lot of kind of private investors certainly know you was that was was the start of Rockrose. Tell tell me about that. What was the how did that come from the from you know from the end of iGas? Why did you step down from iGas? What what, what happened? I, I I stepped down from iGas because I had a difference of opinion with the board right. about what we should do. And um uh I'd like to think in retrospect that I was proved right. Um because um there were things we could do with that as a effectively a man and van business in the um in the East Midlands. Uh, we had a, a big decline in commodity prices. It was quite difficult. We had um, the shell thing was not moving forward. We just closed the deal with Ineos, and um, I had one view about something we could go and buy that would take us to the next level. The board had a different view. That became a position where it was untenable for me, so I left. And um, um, Mrs. A said, "Right, you're not staying at home. You're not sitting on your ass. You need to go and do something." And so I went off and set up a listed shell. Uh, so, so basically, Mrs. A is is to thank for for the forty two x return in Rockrose. For goodness sake, don't tell her that. Yeah, if she hears that you said that, that'll be I'll be in real trouble. It'll cost me even more money than it costs me now. Um, but we went and did Rockrose, um, and it was tough getting that off the ground. Um, you know, I mortgaged my house to do it. I wanted to make sure that I was a significant investor in the business right from the outset. And um, we went off and bought things that other people didn't want. And um, we just were very good at deciding what the right price was. Um, and effectively, sometimes things that other people would bid for, they would sort of put preconditions on it to sort of clean it up and tidy it up. And we said, no, all we're going to do is pay a lower price, but we'll take it with a bit of hair on it, you know. Um, they always talk about, you know, with a piece of toast, the five-second rule about it hitting the floor. Um, and sometimes it took us, you know, five or six months to clean it up before we... Uh, um, but we were able to take things on. So Others weren't. you mortgaged your house to start Rock Rose. Are you, are you quite an all-or-nothing person? I, I, I'm, I don't know how to answer that question. I mean, I'm very... Um, I'm quite controlling of what I do. I find it much harder to invest in other people's businesses than in my own um, because I like to know what's going on. I like to know the levers of what's happening. So um, I do find it hard to invest in other businesses. I do do it sometimes, um, but um, predominantly I like to be in control of what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. So for anyone that doesn't know Rock Rose, um, high level summary, 
Andrew, you delivered circa 42x to investors over a four and a half year period, 13 million quid of equity in, 297 million quid out. How does that happen? Well, right place, right time, doing the right things. Um, And, you know, it's not about, by the way, I think if we hadn't sold it, it'd be worth more now. Um, Well, it is worth more now. I know that for a fact. You just do things that are right. You do things because it's your own money. Yeah. And you just behave as if it's your own money. And I think when I look at a lot of other businesses, a lot of the criticisms and, you know, we were having a conversation before this interview about management that aren't aligned completely with shareholders. And, you know, one tip I would say to anyone looking to invest in a business is just see how aligned management is. Uh, and I don't mean that they've got a load of stock options that put them in that place. I mean, how much of their own money yeah. did they put in? And how much does it hurt when they have to go home and say to the wife, yeah, sorry, darling, I lost half the value of our house or whatever. I think that that's one of the biggest bugbears, isn't it? Is, is you know, management saying, yeah, I'm super aligned when the share price goes up. And kind of, you're sitting there going, well, what about when it goes down? Right, it's not quite the same, right? No. You know, pay, paid for paid for equity is a very different thing to 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 kind of share price incentivization. It's totally different. Absolutely, totally different. This is a little bit embarrassing for you, probably, but I well, it, it, probably not embarrassing. But I, I've heard this the, the the kind of the rock row story described as. I'm going to read you two things. The first one is one of the most epic stunts in capital allocation history ever achieved. And the second one is, Andrew is one of the most accomplished deal makers I've seen in my 30 years in the city. How, like, how, how does that, why do you think that, that you've been such a successful deal maker? Do you think it's, it's, it's the years in investment banking? Do you think it's a personality thing? What, like, what, how do you, what do you put it down to? I think, it's, I think it's personality and having the right people around you um, and people who can challenge what you're doing. Yeah. So we are in the detail. We don't tend to use very many advisors around us. And, you know, the team that was at, some of the people that I work with were with us at iGas, were with us at Rockrose, and are now with us at Kistos. And that means that people can challenge things. And, you know, they can turn around and say, Andrew, you're wrong. I think you're an idiot. You haven't thought about this properly. And um, I can take that criticism and just go off and have another think about it because everything that we've done together has been tried by fire over time. And so you're able to have those conversations which other people aren't necessarily able to have. And they, you know, that's, that's really, really important. So being in the detail, really understanding the numbers and, um, and not obviating that responsibility to a load of different advisors. You know, and we've been very consistent. You know, we use the same people for our CPRs now as we used back in iGas in 2007, ERC Equipoise, it was Equipoise in those days. Um, th- when I reversed um, uh, um, iGas into the Shell company, the Shell was being represented by a lawyer called Ed Lukins. Yeah, um, Ed still works for us now. Basically, he was on the other side of the table when we did that deal. And at the moment we signed that deal, I walked out and said, next time we do a deal, I want him my side of the table. And he still has either table. So we've just got a very consistent um, line of people who we trust and work with, and we are in the detail. You were you were getting involved in the North Sea when a lot of the big majors were leaving. Are you, you know, is it is it a kind of a, a character trait? Are you happy to go against the grain? Well, I think that's where you get the best deals done, right? I mean, part of the reason that we set up Rockrose was because we could see a changing of the guard happening. 
And in that, there were opportunities. So the first ones were with the Japanese. The Japanese were more irritated than most people realized about um, Brexit. And, um, and they wanted very clean exits from, from the North Sea. And that gave us some early opportunities with Idemitsu and Sojits and some things that we put into the first stage of, um, um, of Rockrose. And then you had other bigger companies, for instance, Marathon leaving, um, which was one of our bigger and more complex transactions. And, um, um, and, and that provided an opportunity. Was it, was it competitive bidding for these assets or not? Um, the two Japanese ones weren't competitive um, because they didn't want the um, glare of publicity, frankly. Uh, they just wanted to do things on a bilateral basis. But we did both, we continue to do both competitive bids and, and uh, bilateral transactions. One Dias, oh, sorry, Dias in the Netherlands was a competitive transaction. Um, uh, Marathon was a competitive transaction. But again, it goes back to what I was saying earlier on, that a number of people would sort of say, I'll buy Marathon, but I don't want this bit, or I don't want that bit, or can, you know, can I leave behind a bit of decommissioning, or whatever. And um, we um, became quite deft at working out what those extra bits that other people felt added to complexity uh, were worth, or the size of the liability. So for instance, Marathon had a defined benefit pension scheme, which was in deficit. And so we had to learn everything about the valuation of defined benefit pension schemes and work out how much we had to price in to be able to take this on. So if I find myself sitting at a dinner party next to an actuary, I am um, quite um, familiar on all of the, uh, um, um, the um, uh, jargon associated with defined benefit pension schemes. And I can tell you, sitting in front of the pensions regulator, having three or four interviews about whether or not you are going to look after the pensioners or not is... Uh, it's quite intense. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Tell me, tell me a little bit about, um, you know, you are obviously massively aligned to shareholders with Rockrose, as you are with Kistos. Tell me a little bit about 2020 when we saw, you know, negative oil prices, massive, massive, you know, fear, fear amongst pretty much everything, you know, share price halving. How, like, what, how does that feel? Well, it felt, it felt pretty rough, but the irony was that we just before COVID hit, we'd started a dialogue with um, Viaro and um, uh, and we can we continued that dialogue through COVID, and so we sold Rockrose in the middle of COVID with one physical meeting um, of advisors, etc., which was in the garden of my house, and um, we literally had different breakout groups under different trees and you know hand sanitizers and blah blah blah, and. Um, uh, and that's how we did the deal. So we did the whole thing virtually other than that one face-to-face -face meeting yeah. with all advisors together. So, so Rockrose sold in 2020 for- 2020. 2020 for 248 million, is that right? But we'd already paid dividends and bought back a lot of shares in the meantime. Right, and you owned at, 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 at sale circa how much? About 28%. 28% the business, okay, 20%. So, I mean, that that's fairly remarkable. What, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, what does it feel like on, on completion of sale, your life, I imagine, massively changes 60, 70 million quid, you know, comes on that actually. <laughs> what, how, how does that feel? You wake up, you know, the next morning, well, how does that feel? Um, any deal you do, whether you're buying or selling, is always hollow afterwards. Right. The day after you've done it or where you've signed the thing, right. it's just always hollow. Yeah. Because suddenly the phone's not ringing, nothing's happening. Yeah. Um, and also, we had a period of time to get used to it as well, because 
we were we knew we were negotiating. We knew we were going to do a deal long before the stock market knew that it was definitely going to close. So in that period, you're kind of getting used to. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, does your does your mind run away from you a bit or or not? No, not really. I mean, you just you know, it's not. It's not as if I didn't have any money at that point anyway. I mean, I you know I already because of dividends and stuff like that become you know by most people's standards seriously wealthy. Yeah. Um. Um. So, you know, it wasn't as if it was going to, in that sense, change. But of course, it changed yeah. in life. Yeah. And there was always a there was always conversations at that time about a certain Kenny Rogers song, which is um the Gambler. I don't know whether or not you've ever you know heard the words to the Gambler. But um, you know, don't count your money when you're sitting at the table. There's plenty of time for counting when the dealing's done. Yeah, and um, and that's that's really what it's about. How do, how did you celebrate? Uh, playing the gambler, refreshing <laughs> <laughs> no, your banking out, making sure it was it was actually. I suppose that that leads me on to the next question, and and it really it you know this this fast forward to the start of Kistos. What? Why did you do it? You know, you're, you're set set for life now. Well, now the government's nicked all the money. I'm starting to wonder whether I, why I did it anyway. I absolutely agree with you. I mean, we came out with a, a plan, and um, and then the government nicked all the money. Um, you know, it's the cerebral masturbation of doing something. You know, you just want to be out there doing something. And um, you know, again, Mrs. Austin kicking me and saying, "Go on, you go out to work again. Go and do something again." Yeah. Um, and so we, the money hit the. Bank account in um, September of 2020, and Kistos floated in November of 2020. And was it? So I didn't really spend a lot of time on the beach. Were, yeah, yeah. Did you? You know, did it? Did it feel like um, you started where you left off, or not? Or was it a totally different? Well, no, the irony was that we went back to my flat in um, just off Sloane Square, where we built uh, Rock Rose originally from, and um, originally it was just me and my PA again. And we're back sitting in my flat as we had been four and a half years earlier, founding Rockrose and yeah. just doing the same thing Deja again. Vu. I mean, I, it was a, it was an awful lot easier raising the money for Kistos than it was for Rockrose, I can tell you, um, because of the track record by that point. Yeah, I, I, I read again something doing research for this podcast. I, I read again that if, if, if someone had invested in the Rockrose IPO and had not sold anything to the Rockrose sale, and then reinvested again all of that money in the Kistos IPO. They were currently being, you know, be sat circa 120, 130 times up on their money. I mean, that's yeah, well, it's pretty... forty-two times times three, three. Yeah, yeah. remarkable. One hundred and twenty times your money. Yeah. Totally remarkable. Totally remarkable. Um, I've heard you say something before in an interview about about legacy. I think what you said was something along the lines of, "I want to go home, go back from work, having done something my children would be proud of." Is is Kistos legacy for you or not? No, I think there are still things to do, um, and um, that's why we do. Yeah, there are other things I've been looking at in the background at the moment, either to do in Kistos or alongside that. So privately, I've made several investments in um, electric vehicles. Um, sustainable aviation fuel is something that I think there's a, a lot of opportunity in. Uh, I don't think the current incumbents that are listed at the moment are the right places to play that card. Frankly, uh, in terms of sustainable aviation fuel, um, with the things like that that I think I could feel a little bit more uh, um, uh, better about than you know, we did make a move to gas um, from you know uh, the, the the 
the cleanness of Kistos versus the cleanness of uh, Rockrose is quite different. I mean, Rockrose was clunky old kit, um, um, eking out dollars, whereas, uh, you know, having a, a platform that produces gas in the Netherlands and powered entirely by wind and solar is something you can feel a little bit more proud about. Yeah. But to be honest, making sure that my kids turn out right and um, giving um, the best guidance I can to them is something I can be proud of as well. Yeah, yeah. I've got. I've actually got two questions on that. The first one, and this is before we jump on to kind of you know, current energy policy and, and whatever else, but the, the first one is around pivotal moments that you look back on now and go, damn, that was a that was a massive moment. I maybe didn't appreciate it at the time. Well, I mean, obviously, selling rock rose was a you know, uh, was a pivotal thing. Um, I don't know, I think it's more of a, a series of small steps, to be honest. Um, you know, leaving leaving um, iGas was, was pivotal. I mean, I felt my world had fallen apart at that point. Um, and then a year, 18 months later, I'm up and running properly with a couple of acquisitions under my belt at um, Rock Rose, and it was okay. And actually, I was much more in control of my destiny. And um, so I think, you know, it probably goes back to that point I said earlier on about being a bit of a control freak in terms of what uh, what you do. Yeah, yeah, totally. And if you had done, and this is specifically with, with Rock Rose and Kistos, if you had been building these businesses as as private businesses, do you think that the, the path would have been different or not really? In both cases, we needed access to external capital. Um, so whether you are dealing with a disproportionate number of institutional shareholders, or whether you're dealing with one private equity holder, that's a different position. I guess I understood the listed markets a little bit more when I started, because you know we nearly right back in the beginning did a deal um, with iGas to with a uh, we had a, a term sheet ready to go to to have that funded by uh, a Japanese private equity firm, um, and it was me then that actually turned it into a listed company, and um, so. I couldn't have done it entirely with my own money. Um, I could have obviously done Kistos with my own money, but I, in um, you know, in Rockrose, I couldn't have done it with my own money. I did need access to about thirteen million of external capital, and um, uh, and a listed business was the right way to do that. And I think the timelines of, you know, you've got to develop it with private equity. You've got to develop it, and you're going to have a sale within three to five years, et cetera, et cetera and people forcing you to run a business so that it's available, that ready for sale. I think that drives you on different motivations, you know, where you need to be 50,000 barrels a day, you need to have 100 million barrels of reserves, et cetera, et cetera. If you, if you sit there and say, all I really care about is making sure I've got value for my shareholders, and by the way, I'm one of the largest ones of them, um, you're much more likely to make the right decisions. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I want to I want to read you back. I'm getting into a bit of a theme here, but I want to read you back something I've heard you say before, and and it, well, in fact, someone wrote about you, and it says Austin isn't shy to make the case for an industry he feels has been unfairly maligned. What do you think of the of the current state of of UK oil and gas, and what do you think of the of the direction of travel? Well, I think that was probably written about me when I was in the shale gas industry. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. Um, uh, and obviously, that's an opportunity that the country chose not to take. And I don't think that's going to come back. Uh, I think that ship has sailed, to be honest. Um, you know, I believed in that and because I believed in it and I had my own, um, uh, you know, world centered on doing that. Um, I, I was prepared to make 
make a case even if it was unpopular. Um, the current state of oil and gas in the UK, well, you've seen that we've now moved into Norway. Um, I think the UK and the Dutch governments are making some very serious errors at the moment. And um, uh, it's very, very hard to make the case for investing and continuing to invest in the UK. And the uncertainty that has been provided by the um, uh, the current administration combined with the comments that are being made by the opposition. You know, if you're a manager of a business, you can sit there and say, uh, well, okay, I made the right decision at the time. Government changed its policy, and I'm sorry we lost all the, uh, you know, we lost all the shareholders' money. Um, if you're an owner, which I would like to consider myself as, I'm aligned with the other owners, you can't take that risk. And right now, there is not enough certainty to invest in this country. Mm. So yes, we'll do infill projects we'll, and on the assets we existingly have, but it's really, really unless something really compelling comes along, it's really hard to see how. Yeah. I, I assume then that, that you think that popular politics now causes a much bigger problem later down the line. Yes, yeah, so um, you know, changing the taxation on oil and gas companies was a victimless crime. Yeah, um, you know, uh, the gas price is now lower than it was before the war in Ukraine, um, and we're being taxed at seventy-five percent in the UK um, and eighty odd percent in the Netherlands and whatever. Um, so we've gone from taking home 60 pence in the pound of every of every pound we earn. And a lot of people, I mean, I've, I've tried this out in the pub a few times and said, how much tax do you think oil and gas companies pay? And they go, oh, oh it's a lot. I think it's probably sort of 35 or 40%. You go, no, no, it's 75. And people don't know that it's a victimless crime. And so pe people aren't investing. You're seeing it across the sector of a lack of investment. And that will only, and, and also the weighted average cost of capital in our sector has increased as well because a lot of banks have pulled out of, of even lending into the sector. So your lines, are, are, they're being replaced in part by the trading companies, um, you know, the oil traders yeah. who are basically doing prepays and things like that. Um, but your, that, that is just, driving people to not invest oil fields gas fields have natural decline yeah if those fields continue to decline either people are going to have to go to parts of the world where the um, carbon standards are much lower and so you're going to have a much higher carbon footprint on what you're doing and you're going to have to transport the stuff around the world uh and you don't you know you don't speak to energy security or supply it's, it's crazy but i that, that that's certainly my view and it I feel like we're taking the kind of view that it's fine if it's not happening in my backyard. Yeah, absolutely. You know, importing loads of gas from elsewhere and, you know, I suppose uh, just, just saying not my problem. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm from a generation when, um, you know, you used to have on the radio every week where the balance of payments was. Yeah. And, um, you know, a lot of people these days don't even know what that means. And, you know, on energy, don't, all the changes, a lot of the changes that happened in the UK through the 1980s and early 1990s, you know, when it went going from the 70s when the UK was a basket case through to, you know, being a global force in, in, in by the end of the 90s, um, a lot of that came down to the success of the North Sea and the tax base that came out of the North Sea 
and the success of that business. And we forget that. And that changed things like balance of payments. It meant that we didn't have to keep borrowing foreign currency. And um, people forget it. Yeah. It's all memories. Actually, if you don't mind me saying, you're much less, uh, I don't know what the word is, polished, prim and proper than many oil and gas execs or, in fact, listed execs that, that we meet. And yet, I, I think it's probably also fair. Because I'm sitting here and trained as an authority. Probably is that, that yeah, but, but like the irony is that you're, you're you know, arguably much more successful than many of these execs as well, and and ultimately much more aligned to shareholders than than many of them as well. Um, is Where this are you going with this? Is it, but is it a conscious thing or is it is, is it just it's just natural to you? I've I've always been a little bit different, yeah. um, and you know, right back earlier in this interview, I said to you. Um, you know, if I, the things I could have done better was probably knock a few corners off me a little bit earlier. Um, I've always, you know, um, uh, I, I've always approached things a little bit differently. I've always been a little bit um, uh, alternative in my approach. So um, that just sticks as the case here. Yeah. Yes, there was a time when I was wearing suits and ties and things like that. And yeah, I guess... Having been reasonably successful, it does give me the freedom to um, be a little bit more maverick now. Um, you know, allow the successful maverick. No one listens to him quite the same. Yeah, he quite was successful maverick. Yeah, quite. But I suppose also you. I mean, you have been the figurehead for for Rock Rose and Kistos, but I I don't doubt that you have an amazing team of people behind you. Um, have those people followed you from from my gas days? Tell me a little bit about them. Yeah, variously. Um, so, you know, Peter Mann, who's the CEO. Uh, he was at iGas. Uh, that was his first job in the oil and gas industry. Um, Jamie Stevenson um, uh, was also at iGas, came to Rockrose, came to Kistos. That was his first job out of university. Um, and, um, you know, Jamie's one of the brightest youngsters I've ever come across. Um, so he, he, um, there are a series of people, you know, um, Richard Slate was an analyst on the other side, um, worked at Rockrose, then worked at um, uh, Kistos. So, Again, it's then some of our board members as well. You know, Julie Barlow was at um, uh, one of the companies that um, iGas acquired, possibly the best person I've ever come across in terms of integrating businesses. Um, Richard Benmore has been a mentor to me all the way through from when we did the first farming deal at iGas to Nexon. So, yeah, we've had a, a lot of the same people around. Um, and, you know, either they're mad to keep working with me. I mean, like Jamie once said, but Andrew, I've never worked for anyone else other than you. And it's like, well, don't worry about it, Jamie. You've done quite well out of it. Um, yeah, it's not It's not all about me. It's about having people you can work with and you can leverage off and learn from and be challenged by. Probably being challenged by is the most important part of that. Yeah, you, you're, you're, you're also clearly still extremely ambitious despite despite the rocker success and 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 you know today the, the kistel success as well where where is, is there an end plan is it you know you, you you love the game and you and you you know um no i mean there's still there's still lots to do as i said earlier on there are other businesses and other things that i would like to be involved in um where i think i could add um some value uh and where the skills and and experience i've learned so far i think could come into play Will, will we see Andrew Austin in, in a public market and you know environment outside of oil and gas or not? You could do, yeah. Yeah? You could do. That's exciting. That's exciting. I think what, one thing before kind of the final wrap-up that I just want to ask you about is that 
you've clearly run businesses for for shareholders and i think probably the biggest part of that is that you you have been in 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 well in the case of rock rose and kissos you know probably the biggest shareholder personal shareholder um and yet you see so many public businesses that, that don't run businesses for the shareholders and and you know so focused on scale and size at basically any cost do you think that's uh you know, do you think that's uh, that's a problem with 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 the markets, or do you think that's a, a, you know there should be kind of policies in place to to align management with real cash or what? I, I don't, I don't think you can put policies in place, but I think when you're making investments, you can take that into consideration. So I think you know when you're looking at a business and you're deciding whether you're going to put your hard earned money into it, you need to look at whether or not the management of that business have done the same thing and the extent to which they've done that. And actually, a lot of private equity firms are quite good at this in that they will, <clears throat> they'll put in X amount of money, but they will make sure that management also has to go out and borrow money against their house or whatever, so that if it fails, it hurts. And um, I think maybe in public markets, we're not quite as good at that um, as, um, you know, as, as, as maybe private equity is, um, to just make sure it hurts, because it needs to hurt when it goes wrong, not just be... Um, Otherwise, you have what you know. We always used to describe um, as the trader's call option, right? If it all goes right, you make a load of money. If it goes wrong, then you know, the lose money. Yeah, yeah, that's it, that's it, that's it. I want to, I want to finish on, on, on two questions, Andrew. I think the first one is if you could go back and give your eighteen-year-old self just, just before you stepped onto kind of a, uh, the, the role as a, as a, as a stock jobber, if you could give yourself one piece of advice, what, what would that be? Believe in yourself and be slightly less chippy. Amazing. And then, and then finally, I want to ask you one piece of well, one life-changing experience that you've had that you would recommend anyone else try or do. Bringing out five children. I think that's a bloody good thing to end on. Andrew, um, thank you very much for your time. It was honestly amazing to speak to you and uh, thanks for really appreciate the time. Thank you. Thanks for the wine as well. Very welcome. Thanks. Thanks.